Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Today, we've got on a very special guest. This is a man who I have learned plenty from over the last couple of years. He is a YouTube creator, a video marketer, public speaker, all around social media, personal branding expert, and he's just a good dude as well. This is Roberto Blake. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate that uh, intro. It's uh, super flattering. That's all good, man. And it's it's all honest too. It's all honest. I don't I don't gas people up. <laughs> uh, I like to hear. That's awesome, man. So I've I've given a quick little intro there. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and listeners who don't know you? So for the people who don't know me, I um, I style myself as a creative entrepreneur, and part of what that means is. I think everyone understands that an entrepreneur is somebody who runs their own business, they're independent, they don't work a nine to five job for a boss. They work for themselves and they're responsible to their customers and their clients and that's all they answer to in most cases. Creative entrepreneur, someone who has learned to commoditize talent, whether it's their own talent and their intellectual property or even other people's. And in my case, uh, I commoditize my skills as a creative individual in terms of communication, branding, marketing, and content creation. And I use that to help educate people. And I think of myself very much as an educator and advocate for other creative people who want to either have a successful career in corporate America like I did for many years, or they want to uh, pursue that creativity as a full a free time full uh, <laughs> sorry, full-time freelancer. Sorry about that. Um, or if they want to turn their creative endeavors into some sort of business or funnel their creative skills and put that behind some very practical business. So, I mean, that's how I, you know, style myself when I introduce myself as a creative entrepreneur, a public speaker, and the platform I've marketed myself in most successfully in terms of follower count or vanity metrics is uh, YouTube. Uh, 2013 is when I got serious making at least a video a week. Uh, the big highlight for me is work ethic. I've done about maybe 1300 videos now. There's not a lot of people who can say that even people who've been on this platform for a decade. Um, there are people who can't say that work ethic, as you know, is the thing I probably respect the most. Even if I don't like someone's personality, I respect their work ethic and their hustle if I see it and if it's real. Um, so I'm very proud of uh, the the library of work that I've made. I'm proud that those videos are uh, videos that I think have meaning. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. A lot of my friends in YouTube, people bigger or smaller than me, a lot of them uh, do great entertaining content. I mean, one of my favorite channels is uh, Slice and Rice. They're a, a couple who does some like really great, funny, um, lighthearted comedy stuff. And I think we all need that in a world where we're bombarded by so many things and so many signals so many things making people feel inadequate, um, stressing them out. I think that's great that people like Slice and Rice or my friend Swoop make funny entertainment con entertaining content. One of the things I'm passionate about is the fact that the economy of the 21st century is different. And I think that people don't realize that high income skills are accessible and that you don't have to go into a massive amount of debt. You don't have to start your adult life in debt. Most people in the United States of America start their adult life in debt 
and they die in debt. And that's a big problem. I also think that a lot of creative people have their creativity beaten out of them by their elders and by life and that they're living unfulfilled lives where they don't find value and meaning in their work because it's diminished. They're not being their authentic selves. They're not living their purpose that they were put on earth for. And I want to help them understand that they can do that, not be a starving artist. You know, as a musician, I'm sure you relate to that. There are people making 90K a year talking about Jurassic Park and Star Wars. Okay. In the, in the digital era, you don't have to be uh, at the behest of the music industry mafia. You can go directly to iTunes and Spotify, hustle, work your face off, and earn and own all of your intellectual property and all of your hard work. So I'm glad that I've done over a thousand videos teaching people about how to develop their craft because I've done tutorials on practical software that people can use to make real money. You know, there are people fighting for $15 an hour. How about learning a skill for free that can get you $500 a day on an execution of a deliverable versus time for money to effort? How about that? Or how about if I teach you to use Photoshop and you can make $50 in 30 minutes instead of $15 an hour minimum wage? You know, I I have nothing but respect for people who believe that uh, people should, you know, get more. But the reality is the 21st century economy is moving to artificial intelligence and automation. And the thing that a robot can't do is be creative. And there are also technical detailed skills that people um, still can do with their hands as far as trade skills. The problem is in the 21st century, you got to learn how to market yourself because not everyone's going to be, you know, a, a Photoshop expert or a musician or a writer or a filmmaker. And I respect people who work with with their hands. But I do think that in the 21st century, if you want to make a living, you better learn how to sell yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think you have to take advantage of all the great tools and the marketing, the free platform. You don't have to build. You don't have to go and have thousands of dollars for a billboard anymore, dude. You got Instagram. And I think that people should have access to that. I think people should learn how to make the most of the opportunity they have right now. And that's what I'm proud of. I'm proud that in my social media platforms, I'm educating people. Uh, A lot of it's free. I've done some paid online courses. I have a course that I did with uh, lynda.com through LinkedIn Learning. Um, Now, granted, I get royalties on that. I obviously (laughs) sell some of my own programs and some of my own download templates and things like that. But I'm really proud of the community that I've built and the people that I've seen take themselves out of bad situations and believe in themselves and build something worthwhile. So, you know, that's what I'm proud of. I'm proud of my community. That's awesome, man. That's, I can definitely relate to that because I know with myself as a, as a musician and as an artist, the thing that it goes way beyond the, you know, what you called vanity metrics. So it's always nice to see the number of followers going up. It's nice to see, you know, I've had some pieces of content go viral and it's cool to see that. But to me, nothing beats either in the real world, I mean, it's best in the real world or online, but if someone comes up to me and is like, you know, either this song of yours or just something you said there or just kind of watching you over the past couple of years doing your own independent music grind and doing it like that, that's inspired me to, even if it's not in something creative, like you said, so many people have dreams and ambitions that are way beyond what they're currently doing. But I think that fear of judgment of society, plus, you know, the way the schooling system is, the way parents often raise their children, right? You've got all these forces that are just telling you like, look, just stay in this lane, do this thing. This thing has always worked. And as you alluded to, we're still, we're reaching this brave new world where, yeah, some of those things do still kind of work, but the seams are starting to kind of split a little. People are getting a little skeptical about college and a whole bunch of other things. People Mm -hmm. are making money and becoming known in ways which didn't exist 10 years ago. Exactly. What was an, what was an influencer? Uh, 10 years ago, if you said that word, people would just kind of look at you like you're an influencer. Like, okay. Like I met someone, like I met this wonderful um, woman, Peggy Glenn. Uh, You probably have have heard of her grandma potty mouth. She went viral a while back in YouTube. She's got about 200,000 subscribers. Okay. It's about like 75 years old, a wonderful lady. Hearing her story though, and that she, she edits all of her own YouTube videos, you know, Oh, wow. she, she's 75 years old. She taught herself video editing. She got on, you know, YouTube and she's got a cookbook. It's like, it's this, she's adorable. Right. But the fact that somebody's 
grandmother or great grandmother taught themselves social media and edits her own videos in iMovie and is good at it and makes her own YouTube videos and posts them and does everything. It's just so extraordinary to me because it means there's no excuses. And the thing is, she did. She had this wonderful life. I saw her speak and I learned more about her backstory. She went into the self-publishing industry in the 80s. In the 80s. Oh, wow. She learned new software in the 80s and the 90s. There was a point where she was unemployed. Her, you know, like parents and grandparents went through like the, the depression. She's lived. She's seen that you have to hustle and you have to fight and that nothing's given to you. And again, she was a she was a woman in a time where like there wasn't as many opportunities. So she's seen it all. She's seen it all. And she's like a wonderful person. She's a great inspiration. But it put it into perspective for me that the things that we're doing today, a lot of them existed. It's just that people didn't break through and people didn't become entrepreneurs as much back then. And there were opportunities and there were work from home businesses in the 80s and the 90s that I didn't know existed and that most people don't know existed. And I, I'm so tired of people like frou-frouing on it and thinking that it's it's um, for lazy people or anything like this. So Because I'm finding out that like secretly this has been here for decades and it's just now really our time and people were fighting them. I'm going to punch people in their throat until they accept it. The new world is here and I'm sorry, I hate to break it to you. The world that your parents and your grandparents romanticize is dead. It's been dead for a minute. It's been artificially kept alive. It's been undead living this unnatural, unholy existence that's done nothing but perpetuate mediocrity. I felt that in my soul. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're gonna have to take that clip and like just, yeah, I'm gonna have to do something with that clip right there, man. That was dope. Yeah. So I want to talk about the future and where things are going, but before we get to that, I'd like to find out a little bit more about you. I've been sure. subscribed to your YouTube channel for, I want to say, three or four years now. Right for on. three for three or four years. Um, I feel like I know a lot about your thoughts on like personal branding and marketing and all that. And I've heard like kind of like little snippets of your story, but I want to get to know Roberto Blake. So let's rewind and um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about you yourself, like kind of what's yeah. led you on this journey. So my name's Roberto Blake for a reason, and I'm Roberto Blake the second, actually, for a reason. My father came to this country from Panama, and all of my grandparents on both sides were born in Panama. So I'm a first generation American. My father came here as a teenager with his um, three older brothers. His two youngest siblings were born here. My, you know, my aunt and my uncle, like, um, and he essentially came here with nothing. And he grew up, you know, in, in not a great situation in Panama, you know, back then under Noriega. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into the history of Panama. If you look into the region that I won't dive into, but, um, you know, and it being adjacent to Colombia, but he had a hard life and, you know, his father wasn't in his life for a lot of it. And uh, I never met my grandfather. I never met my father's father. I met all of my other grandparents and I had a relationship with all of my grandparents. I never met my um, grandfather before he passed away. My father did reconcile with him before he passed. And so that's always something that I think about a lot is the fact that that's somebody who's a part of my story that I'll never really know. I'll never hear his side of things. I'll never hear what his experiences were. And that part of my history is lost to me forever. That's something I think about a lot is, is that, which is why even though my father, he's since uh, retiring from the military, moved back to Panama, you know, I have a good relationship with him now, even though we were estranged in my young adulthood, especially with my parents' divorce, which I'll get to, you know, in a minute. But so my dad came to this country and he uh, finished school a year early and joined the United States Marine Corps. Um, my parents got married and dated in their early 20s. Um, I was born roughly like a year later. And in many ways, because of his own situation and his own relationship with his father and then later with his stepfather, it's apparent to me in hindsight that no one's ever really truly prepared to be a parent. But my father 
And some of the things I experienced stem completely from his fear of failure and of not being able to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways that haunts people. And I've talked to him about it many times since, because even though there's a lot of things I don't entirely forgive or forget, I accept that he was doing the best that he knew how. Sure. And that there's not really a manual for parenting, even though there's nothing but judgment for it. He was also a Marine in a time where there was a lot of, um, it wasn't maybe as popularized or because we didn't have social media and things like that. But you have to remember at the time that our parents were in, racism was different in this country. Discrimination was different. Um, Even nationalism was different. It just wasn't necessarily called or labeled. But you had a lot of people, even subordinates of my father, who disrespected him because they wanted to feel they were more American than him, wanted to think they were more special than him. I understand pride in your country, but I think that and this is controversial to say, but I'll say it here. I think that the, the idea of American exceptionalism is flawed because it's in a, a form of elitism that mm-hmm. says because you won the lottery and you were born in what might be one of the greatest nations in, in the world, what might be one of the greatest nations in history, you didn't earn that. That was random. You could have been born into a country where you would live on a dollar a day in absolute poverty, like 1.6 billion people in the world, you literally won a one out of six dice roll. And you think that makes you better than somebody else because you were blessed. So like, I mean, that's just my honest feeling about it. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way because my father, you know, served this country just like everybody else that puts on the uniform. And you know what? He didn't get the same respect because he had an accent and because of where he came from. And he loved this country in a way that only somebody who's seen the difference and lived with it can fully appreciate. I will never, I will never for as long as I live, love this country the way my father loved this country. Yeah. (laughs) I will never appreciate what America is Mm. the way my father and every other immigrant. Yeah. I think that, that lack of gratitude and perspective I feel is a big problem in the Western society in general at the moment. I just think, I don't know if it's due to lack of traveling or over comfort, not enough difficulty, you know, living in such peaceful and, you know, people think we're living in crazy times, but, you know, we're living in very peaceful times and have it's, been for the past few decades. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it just was making me think too and everything like that, you know, growing up and later when I, like when things were a little harder after my parents' divorce, you know, I, I realized that there was envy in myself of some of my friends who I thought had it easier. I don't remember entirely where I heard this phrase, but just because someone lives in a nice house doesn't mean nice things are happening there. Like nice things aren't necessarily going on in the inside. And I I later would find that out that some of my friends envied me because they liked coming to my house because that was their escape from their house. Uh, No matter how nice it was, I was like, why can't we go to your house? Your house is so nice and blah, 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 and everything like that. Like they wanted to come to my house because in my house, nice things for the most part were happening. Yeah. And they what? were made to feel special and they were made to feel good. And they had support when they came into my home um, and the way my family treated people. There were a lot of people who they might have been blessed financially, but they weren't blessed in another way. Absolutely. I mean, one one thing I always try to say to people and remember myself is that when you're seeing other people, especially people who look like they're further along than you or they're more successful or they're living the life you want or you know, I always try to tell people you're you're normally just seeing one or two dimensions of things. So you might see someone down the street, you know, and I don't know, say they've got like a flashy car, or they've got a big house, or they're wearing some, you know, nice clothes, you've got something that something that provokes envy in other people. Yes. And I always just remind them, like, you don't know, you don't know what that guy's dealing with. Like, you don't know, he, he could be there. But you don't know what's going on. Like he could be going through some huge problem in his relationship, having some problems with his children. He could be having financial difficulty. You know, people, I mean, I guess it's natural to compare yourself to other people. But comparison is the theft of joy. It is. I think often about like what happened with Robin Williams, Kate Spade, Chester Bennington, Mac Mm -hmm. Miller. A lot of musicians, man. Like you have music, entertainment, And you hear less about it, but even in entrepreneurship, you have all these people and they're successful. They have money. They have everything you could want. They kill themselves. 
Mm. And then we all cry. We all say it was unfortunate before their time. And we don't stop to think about what like, and then we just say, oh, well, you know, it was mental illness. It was a bad roll of the dice. It was this or it was that. And we're ignoring a fundamental truth of society as a whole, but at scale that I've, I've been trying, you know, I talk about this in Twitter is like, I genuinely believe, and a lot of people disagree with this, but the thing is you, as you, you know me, you have context on me. I believe yeah. in meritocracy more than most people to the point of almost a religion. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I believe in individual responsibility to the point of holding myself to unreasonable standards that probably I'd be healthier without. <laughs> like sure. I, uh, that all being said, I've come around to almost a supervillain Machiavellian point of view that society is to blame for most of the ills in the world in the sense that in the sense that the social agreements that we make, the social contract that we make, and this goes well beyond political or ideological spectrum. It's like the reality is the framework that we currently operate in at a social level is wildly toxic and produces only a couple of byproducts, suffering, mediocrity, squandered potential, and massive debt. Mm. And, and the person who I think is most adamantly and putting this into real perspective for people is probably Gary Vaynerchuk. I think uh, that what he says about keeping up with the Joneses, you know, it's funny. Gary V is the non-toxic version of Tyler Durden in some ways, in some way. He's a more enlightened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in my opinion, when I think about it, there's a lot of differences where like Gary V is a much better dude, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, but I want, but I think uh, there's a similar thesis. Do you remember uh, Tyler Durden's monologue about the, the children of middle history? I look around and I see all this squandered potential. We don't have a great war. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our Great Depression is our lives. We keep working jobs we hate to buy we don't need. And I would add to that, to impress people we don't like. I, I like, and when I think about that, I think about what Gary Vee says about judgment without context. We judge all these people that we think have it better to us in Instagram and YouTube and in social media and all these things. We judge them without any context as to whether there's a void in their life that they're trying to fill or whether having their life would even fix our own shit and make us happy. Yeah. Like I don't like, I look at everybody and I'm like, there's nothing about living their life that would fix what's wrong with me. There's nothing about having what they have that would fix what's wrong with me. Yeah. So it's not going to get better. And then I think about the thing that makes it better is working on yourself, personal development, self-improvement, the things, um, finding meaningful work. Uh, Tony Robbins talks a lot about this. You know, people talk about people who are much more religious, talk about the importance of, and even people who are non-religious about the importance of a purpose driven life. Yep. And I, I think Tyler Durden was alluding to the fact that the, the children of middle history, the modern man, the modern woman, it, we're in the current era, and this was even earlier than we are now, are defined primarily by their lack of purpose. And lack of purpose, to Gary Vee's point, comes from a lack of self-awareness. And I also think a lack of optimism. To Jordan Peterson's point, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with him. There's a <laughs> extremely he's a controversial figure, but if you take all of that aside, no, I love I love the dude. You don't need to give disclaimers with him. But if you take all of that, well, you know, for people also who don't have context on me, because I don't agree with him on everything, but I don't agree with everyone on everything. There are things yeah, I course. disagree with with Gary Vee, like how I was constantly saying Snapchat is going to be real. <laughs> like, but you know, but the my point being that. If you look at the things he says about personal development, if you look at the things he says about the importance of finding um, your purpose and finding meaning in your hardships and that you can elevate yourself above the suffering that you're enduring, that, okay, here's suffering, here's the good news, that's hard, you can be more than that. You don't have to be defined. Do you realize that one of the biggest problems is that the only identity many people have is their struggle? or their mental illness, or their poverty. Mm -hmm. That's literally the only identity they have. But we have a social fabric and a social construct that labels people and lets you only be one thing. What do you mean when you say that? The framing, you talked about it. You, the fact that for some people, 
they're going to find something you said or did to put the label liberal or conservative on you. And they're only okay. going to see you from the perspective of how they view someone who's liberal or conservative. And in their mind, they have what might be called binary thinking or black and white thinking, where you're only allowed to be that you're that or you're not. Gotcha. And you're yeah. nothing else in the same way that there are people who are going to look at you and they're going to judge you from the frame of what their assumptions or experience are of someone who's black. Yep. And you can't be anything more than that. Primary example, I'm black, but I'm also Latino. I'm black, but I'm also from an immigrant family. I'm black, but I'm also affluent. Like, but in, but if somebody black, black might mean thug, black yeah. might mean criminal, black might mean ghetto, black might mean urban. The assumption that black means African-American, what's Idris Elba then? You can have a different culture or context. It's like what's somebody who's from Trinidad? What's someone from Jamaica? From oh, Jamaica? I mean, they are in America. I know people who are black in America. They're Nigerian. I get a little bit annoyed when I hear terms like the black experience <laughs> or like even even the black community, because I'm like, what do you mean the black community? Like there's there are a billion plus black people in the world, right? Of, there's different like, experiences at an individual. Like I'm okay. a champion of individualism. Yes, me too. Us, absolutely. Absolutely. Because this is the thing, because when people are like, you know, the black American experience, I'm like, is there is there a black American experience? There's surely there's like several million so, of them. Like your experience is not going to be the same as like when I interpret that, because I also try to give benefit of the doubt when I interpret that, I think that they might be talking about the concept of benefit of the doubt. Well, see, when I was in, when I was growing up, because we were military and I lived on military base, more context on my history, um, the military has its own culture. And because you're in the military, you're going to, or you're a military family, you're going to travel, the world is pr presumably, you're going to go to different states, you're going to go to different countries, you know, that's the deal that you sign on for. So the thing is, in some ways, you uh, become less entrenched or less, um, you take on the cultural identity of everything that goes with the military lifestyle, which is actually very separate from the generalized American experience. That doesn't mean that there's not things like racism or, you know, or, or bigotry or things of that. Because mm -hmm. people are individuals, but being military, there's a baseline of we've got it good and we're all military families that have like things that we go through in terms of anxiety of waiting for the other shoe to drop. When we lose somebody, we all feel it in the community. There was like a very, it's a very different culture and it's a very different network that you belong to that's yeah. separate from every other experience that you have um, culturally in this country. If you're in the, if you're in a military family, if you're military adjacent, right? So I say that to say the fact that it's like when I would get lost as a kid, I wasn't the black kid. I was like wandering the streets. I was another military brat, mm -hmm. you know? So like, People were nice to me, gave me directions or even rode me home or like, you know, I could go to like go to their house, have like literally, literally have this the 90s now milk and cookies, mm -hmm. not be molested and be taken back home to my parents in one piece. Yeah, it sounds quite kind of similar to my background. I mean, I don't know if you know, I grew up actually in Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. um, and I lived in like an expat community that sounds a little bit similar to what you're describing, you know? So where I lived, it was kind of like a, if you imagine a small town where everybody works for the same company. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, talk, talking about something, this, this is something, this will crack some people up. It wasn't until I was like age 11 or 12 and uh, when they used to have Jerry Springer on TV, that was when I realized it was possible for people to have um, a child without being married. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that was actually possible until I was 11 or 12, because it didn't exist where I grew up. When I looks like when we moved off the military base and my parents were doing their like first separation and like we moved to Atlanta uh, before I moved back here as an adult, like when we moved to Atlanta, when I was like a kid, I was like, like nine or something or whatever, like the urban kids were wildly different. And I was introduced to phrases and things that I'd never heard of. Like, I didn't know what's gay or what's that word mean? Or what's that F word mean? They're like, I didn't like, you're a military brat. You're taught to be respectful. You're taught to be polite. You're taught like to have your manners. You're taught to respect everybody's culture. You're taught that you're a guest in people's home. Like you are raised very disciplined, the discipline, the discipline. And I think that's a big fundamental part of my childhood that framed who I was as an adult, the discipline of having a military father, the discipline of being in sports as a kid, the discipline and the respect. 
was very much rooted into me. And it was respect for my dad uh, and my mom taught me less respect for authority and more respect for work ethic and good people. Because my parents were a little bit rogue, like my mom especially, for not forcing me to conform, respect authority, and to not always 100% accept the rules, Mm -hmm. but learn all the rules. Learn all the rules, but if you don't agree with them, you don't always have to follow them. And that was like a very weird thing to teach a kid, but they'd been through things where they knew the rules aren't always right, and the rules aren't always made for you. Power doesn't entitle anyone to a pass. Like, and that's something that really stuck with me. And it also, like, is probably why I had to at some point become an entrepreneur because there's a point where you can't work for people if you believe that um, and not be happy because I was miserable being in corporate and having to be a yes man and smile in people's faces. And it, you know, that, that came to a head. So, um, I mean, that's an example of that. And the fact that neither of my parents told me who to be. My mom and dad never told me who to be. They made sure that I was lawful good, mm-hmm. that I understood right from wrong, that I understood the, the importance of being respectful, of being honest, you know, of being truthful. And also, but, but they taught me to protect myself. And I, it was a hard lesson and I didn't always get it right. They taught me, like, don't let people take advantage of you. Yeah. Don't let people abuse you. Yeah. Like, and it was hard because I didn't always know how to do that. I didn't always know how to fight back, but they never made it to where I shouldn't fight back or where I felt like, well, I guess this is okay because it's somebody in authority. Yeah. They always taught me to stand up for myself and I had to figure out how to do that on my own. They never told me how to go about it. Mm-hmm. They didn't judge me for how I went about it if I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And they didn't tell me I had to be this or I had to believe in Things that like they helped me figure out who I was and how to make me successful at that. And the same for all of my siblings. They never told us, like, I have three younger siblings. They never told us who to be. They never told us how to think. Mm-hmm. They never told us what we had to believe. They presented us with everything that they knew and everything they could find and anyone they could find that could help us figure out our potential, our gift. Like I had artistic ability and I had uh, gifts and I had the gift of gab. They did everything to try to make me make the most of those things. When they figured out that I was good with computers and technology, they did everything they could for me, everything they could afford to do. They couldn't always say yes to everything, but they, they never made me feel bad about who I was. They always said yes to me as a person. And that's a, and that's a good thing though, isn't it? I mean, you don't want... I think there's a danger with people who grow up in an environment or with parents who do say yes to everything and do give them every demand because it just creates that sense of entitlement. Money just falls from the sky. Mommy and daddy have infinite everything. And, you know, then people meet the real world and they're kind of like, oh, wait, like, where's my where's my job? Where's my paycheck? Where's my I want this? I want that. And it's like, well, so like my mom is a saint. She's not perfect, but when I say she's a saint, I mean, she's a saint for putting up with me and for being able to um, live with all the that comes from having a weird kid, a weird (laughs) kid who's very smart, believes more often, believes himself to be always right. But the downside is that 95% of the time he is because I wanted to always be right. I wanted to be smarter than everybody else. So I read more than everybody else. And I just did facts and I did this and I was blessed with a high IQ, but I also worked my ass off to often be the smartest person in the room at 10 years old. And when you have a kid like that and you're a parent, especially from a more traditional background or around a community of traditional people, I appreciate my mom being a saint and putting up with that and not conforming and doing the easy thing and managing me or stifling me or putting me in a child's place when I had an intelligence level that was above that, I she always treated me like what I was, an intellectual, a very smart human, 
but she also never took my intelligence for granted and let me think I had everything figured out. And she always held me accountable and to a standard where if I'm going to say that I'm right, I have to back it up. I have to prove it and I have to communicate why, especially since as a child, I won't be given the benefit of the doubt. Especially as a person of color, I might not be. Mm. That she never really drilled in as much specifically. She never called it out or said, well, because you're black or this or that. Neither of my parents ever did that, believe it or not. But what they did was they just, it is and it isn't in the sense of, I didn't have, because what happened is I didn't appreciate and I didn't understand certain danger signs of things. And I, Mm -hmm. so I didn't, I got very, there was, I was probably too comfortable in, oh, this will be okay. Or people will understand that probably, I understood why they did it because they didn't stigmatize or make me feel different in that way, especially since I was different enough in the sense that I'm the weird kid, I'm into art, I'm into science, I'm into all these things that at the time weren't accepted, especially in the black community, you know, in an urban area at the time, like, you know, especially in the South, like there's this whole traditionalism that I didn't fit. There's just traditional view of what a boy is, what a man is, all these things that actually, in hindsight, I think were, I think that a lot of people squandered their potential and alienated themselves from successful habits because they didn't want to be judged as different and weird like I was and get beat up. And now I'm happy that I got my ass kicked every day because if it's worth it to not be pumping gas or tending bar yeah. or, or at the behest of a, a prick boss, totally worth it. Yeah. But yeah. other people weren't willing to take those lumps any of my friendships and relationships, any of my relationships with girls was all built off of my innate charisma, not off of ever learning social skills or social graces. That came in my 20s. That came in my mid-20s. Uh, and then I developed into closer to what you guys see today in um, the last stage of my 20s. Like after 25, when you get your free prefrontal cortex developed and everything like that, I think my socialization started more at like 27, 28 of like, hmm. I think I understand now, like, then that was a lot of, excuse me, effort. It was actual effort to learn social cues and to, to read people emotionally instead of just reading them intellectually and predicting and calculating things like, you know, in a very almost like academic, like fashion and breaking people down. Like I was very good at breaking people down and psychoanalyzing people. It's not the same thing as reading the room. No, no, no. no. I think I'm literally tearing out. Think about because I think it's some of the happiest moments of my childhood was being in the Boy Scouts of America and uh, and what that meant to me and to have you know those bonds and to be part of something you know um, especially as a misfit that means a lot to you you know I was bullied for being into comic books now they're always popular and everything like that I was bullied for being into anime before anyone even really knew what anime was because my uncle was really into it and got me into imports like super early. Um, even as a kid in the 80s and 90s and everything like that, it was like really cool to me because I wanted to be an illustrator. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to make comic books. I wanted to work for Marvel or Disney as a kid. So uh, fun, dude, this is weird. Like, uh, it's so similar to me, man. Yeah. Not on, not on the bullying thing, but I wanted to be a cartoonist when I was a kid. So that was people, that was my first creative thing. People would steal my doodles and my stuff and tear them up in front of me to make me cry. Wow. Because they would take bets and say, I bet you I can make them cry. Man, ki- kids can really be a-holes, man. And then they wanted to make me cry because then they could call me a wuss or they could call me the F word. Yeah. Where did you go to school? Where was this? I was in Atlanta for a while. And then I moved to North Carolina. Um, and I was in North Carolina for a long time. And um, so in Atlanta, this was a lot of it when I was super young. And then um, at the beginnings of preteen, uh, teenager, the it wasn't. In some ways, it wasn't as bad in middle school in um, North Carolina. Um, it was less of bullying me for being a nerd or being into art. That was the thing when I was um, much younger. Um, and it wasn't for, you know, the Black Latino thing. In, in middle school, it had more to do with the fact that I was very talkative and very into science. 
and very much not into the things that other people my age were into. So I was like, you're weird. Why don't you just do what other people do? Why can't you be like everybody else? Mm -hmm. It was just for being other. And it was, it was hard. And then weirdly, like if a girl was into me, she'd get picked on. Okay. Like, it's like literally a girl would be into me and then she'd get picked on. And then she'd want to like, kind of be like friends with me or into me secretly because she didn't want to get picked on. Like, it was like so messed up Mm because again, and, but again, we have this social fabric that says conform or we'll make your life a living hell. Don't be different. Join or die. Do you think that's social fabric or do you think that's just sort of the state of humanity? Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes I just think that I love human beings, but you know, there's uh, we, we've got good sides and we've got downsides. And I think one of those downsides is that one thing I, I think I've really understood over the last few years is I do believe that human beings are, are naturally tribal, you know, naturally very, very tribal. And the whole in-group, out-group thing, it can it can be based on any number of factors. And even if even if there doesn't seem to be those factors, it's like people will find something like you could take you could take a school or a, a group or room where everybody literally like looks the same, right? Do you know but you'll still find something to do you do you do you know do you know what the dark side of tribalism is? What's that? It's when you have bad leaders or you have populism among uneducated people. Hmm. Tribalism and even democracy is fine if everyone's reasonable and if everyone's educated. If everyone isn't reasonable and everyone isn't educated, it's a problem. Do you realize how humanity would operate as a species if everybody was even close to being on Elon Musk level? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Not just being an Elon fanboy, but I want you to imagine a society <laughs> where the baseline of human intelligence is being 10% off from Elon. Oh, boy. Do you realize how quickly pettiness is like ostracized at that point. Cause you see if think about it like this, if the things that we socially shame people for are not things like arbitrary things, like let's say that let's, let's say what, what would you say if we lived in a, in a society, if we, if we lived in a society where not being, not being kind or empathetic was more shameful than being an effeminate dude or a masculine woman. Think about a society, and I'm just using those as extreme examples. Mm-hmm. I'm like, literally imagine that being an a-hole meant you will be ostracized beyond anything else. Imagine a society where being truly, truly lazy is the thing that's ostracized more than anything else. Imagine a society where you're not allowed to give up on yourself where people will not just sit there and let you give up on yourself, where they will literally not feel, they'll feel tremendous guilt if they're not doing right by you. Yeah. Now that sounds like utopia. I'm not saying it wouldn't still have its problems, but I'm saying imagine a society where we operate as a species to where we realize that to combat our own extinction, it's all hangs on, all hands on deck and nobody's getting left behind because we need everybody. We need every soul in the fight for elevating the human race. Yeah. When I think about the fact that like we don't have a scientific answer for a super volcano or for a solar flare, like that's a we have so like that's a big deal. That's an all hands on deck thing, right? Like becoming an interplanetary species, that's an all hands on deck thing. And if you don't want to go that big, cancer, AIDS. Yep. Like that's a all hands on like schizophrenia, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's my like can you imagine living with somebody you built a life with for 50 years and they don't know who you are anymore can you can you imagine Uh, can you imagine I've I've seen it happen not firsthand fortunately but um I I know someone who's going through that right now how is all the pettiness of our society day to day stacked up against that right Mm -hmm. So like that's the dark side of tribalism is when I say the social fabric or the social contract or the social construct is the the stupid idea that all the you and I see in Twitter where people are debating their liberal ideology or their conservative ideology or calling each other snowflakes or SJW <laughs> or all this nonsense, all this nonsense where, when literally when literally we have problems that we really need to fix. Yeah. 
when my answer is to be very real with you is that I pray every day for Lex Luthor or some supervillain to literally, literally kick everyone in the teeth <laughs> and, make everybody, and make everybody do the right thing. And by the right thing, I mean, get their act together and let's go to work. Let's go to work. Let's monetize every single human being. Let's like, let's like, let's monetize every single human being. Let's raise the level of education and the baseline of education of every single human being and put them to work solving the problems that affect every single human being. Because we have so much unreasonable, untapped potential that we can lift up every single person on this planet out of poverty because we're going for the stars next. I know. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. The thing is to have that kind of utopia, though, you'd need to. I don't think it's utopia, though. Like, I no? think. It's, no, no, no. Utilitarianism. I think it's utilitarianism as a philosophy, mm. meaning that we're prioritizing being useful. We're prioritizing acting with a sense of purpose because the thing is, you'll notice that people who are living their sense of purpose don't get drawn into those debates nearly as much as people mm. who are living in mediocrity, people who are suffering, and people who don't know who they are. Of course. So I think the elevation of the individual, I mm. think that a person who designs the life that they want is living their own utopia. Regardless of class, regardless of how much money they make a year, I think someone living on their own terms as much as they can and by their own hand mm. is living their own version of utopia beyond their internal mental struggles or emotional suffering. So like that's one of the things that I think I very much like about Peterson's message. And I think yeah. that's where it aligns with Gary Vee's message and Tony Robbins' message is that I believe that maximizing individual potential and becoming more utilitarian and becoming an essentialist, maybe not a minimalist, but an essentialist of saying is everything that I'm currently and everyone that I'm keeping in my life have a very clear purpose and role in what they do to add value to me. And am I using that to add value to not only maintaining my own existence, but to put something positive out into the world? Mm -hmm. Am I being useful? Am I, am I a utility or am I siphoning value? Am I, you know, uh, overhead? Am I an expenditure? I hear that. I hear that a million percent, man. I just want, you know, the, the, I guess the reason why I use the term utopia is just human nature, you know, human I, nature. So you yeah. are, you are, you are, you're an exceptional individual. But the thing is, I don't think I'm that special. I think it's that, I mean, that's, and that I know that sounds like false humility when I say that, because <laughs> like, the thing is, I, I wasn't always, I didn't always, I didn't come to this conclusion like that. Yeah, sure. I've worked at it. I have more to give than this. I can be more than this. I have this one moment in time and I'm worthy. I think if someone said that to themselves, their life changes. I think that the way they treat people changes. I think the way they treat themselves changes because I think that our society abuses people. And I think it starts in the mirror. Mm -hmm. I think it starts in the mirror with telling yourself you're not good enough. You're not that you'll always be alone, that no one will accept you. I know that because it's the things I told myself that made me want to take my own life. Like, and the thing is, it's like the, 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 it started with me. I was the first person to tell myself that I suck. I was the first person to not think I'm enough. And then when you think that it affects every action of every moment, every day, and other people can sense it and they mirror it. People are a mirror of the standard we set for ourselves. The, the, our interactions, our interactions with people are often, not always, but often a mirror of the standard of how we treat ourselves and what we'll accept from other people. Because when you don't accept from other people, they stop giving it to you. Yeah. hundred percent, man. hundred percent. Yeah. Wow. I think you're, I think on that regard, I, I feel like you're, you're more optimistic than I am. I'm, I'm extremely optimistic on an individual level, but I just know that, you know, with all the different personality types out there some people just are not very conscientious and industrious and you know you've why do you think you know, that part of it is just personality i mean you've got you've got two factors you've of course you've got nature and you've got nurture so there's certainly the societal factors but just in terms of i don't have you ever done like a full-blown personality test of yourself here's the thing i've done them i've done them in cycles mm. and the thing is i've learned that my own results vary based on the conditions that I've done in, in the last 30 or 90 days of taking uh, the test. Now, grand, they don't vary dramatically, but they vary. And that's why I take those things with a little bit of a grain of salt. But I also, it, it goes to the nature versus nurture factor of, if you think about it, I remember clearly, I have such a good memory that I remember clearly who I was as a person at five and six years old 
what my values were, how going I was, what I believed in, how sensitive I was. I remember all of these things. And I was, I'm going to say this in a weird way and everything like that, at like who I remember myself to be from four. And I can remember myself at four years old, by the way, because then that's when my sister was born. And I remember it clear as day. I remember who I was from four to eight years old. And I was pure. I saw the world clearly. I saw things as they were. I saw the truth. And I spoke truth to power when I saw it. I understood how to learn. I understood how to formulate a clear thought. I knew right from wrong. I was pure. And I think most children are. I think like when you're a kid, you see what's presented to you in a very clear way. Not influenced, not uh, manipulated, not filtered, just truth. And you're conditioned to accept the reality in the frame of your elders, your culture, your society. Like you're, you're conditioned. You're conditioned and you're told what to believe, who to be, what right is even when it doesn't line up with what's in your gut. Mm. Like, you know, instinctively. When you're like that age, you're running on instinct and it's pure. And that's what I mean. I'm not talking ideologically pure. Or maybe even I am because the thing is, at five to eight years old, you don't have an ideology. Before you're introduced by your parents, by society, by culture, whatever, into a framework of thinking, you just try to figure out what the truth is. And the thing is, once you start believing in something, you don't care about the truth anymore. You care about contextualizing every piece of information to align with your beliefs or to root out heretics. Um, read the book if you haven't, Primal Branding. It's like a very good um, education on the psychology of marketing, but how much the psychology of marketing is the psychology of building religion. Marketers build religion. Oh, gosh, yeah. Like, that's, that's what we do. Apple is a flipping religion. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Apple is the perfect case study in building Google too. Apple and Google are the perfect case study in building religion. I mean, and that's what marketing is. And people don't realize that. It's taking um, a thought and a series of thoughts. It's creating rituals. It's aligning those thoughts to actions. It's uh, finding other true believers to validate you within your echo chamber and then identifying heretics. It's having your own coded language. There's so much to it. And every major influencer either knows that through study or through instinct. And that's that's how people get big. That's how people get to 100,000, 400,000, 500,000, a million, 10 million mm-hmm. is they're building up their thing. It's like, hey, Jake Paulers, that's like, that's the religion, right? Dab, that's part of the religion. That's the ritual. <laughs> that's no different than this or this or like, or this or like, it's like salutes or whatever it is. Or it's like, it's like live long and prosper. I can't actually do it. Like whatever it is, right? So like- there's a you like everybody essentially as an influencer in some way, shape, or fashion is building their own group of we call them followers, but where does that come from? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like in that way, I don't think it's nefarious and I don't even think it's always intentional. Like I said, it's good marketing and it's instinctual, but the framework is that. All of that I say is this is that the framework of that is in contrast in many ways to the values of individualism. And the values of individualism and the elevation of self, personal development, individual responsibility, self-efficacy, all those things, meritocracy, those things are the differentiation factor between people who become the 10% or the 1% and are often misfits. And Elon was bullied. Like, and and you know, and so is Steve Jobs, and so is so many other people. Like those people, the misfits of society are often, if they're not born into wealth. The millionaires and billionaires are all misfits and outliers. The people who build things, the thing, the people who build things are misfits and outliers and everyone else works for them. That's the difference between, again, a society where someone um, accepts and conforms to a baseline as a lay person and doesn't elevate themselves versus doing the thing that an outlier would do, aka it's one of a couple factors. You won't always be smarter than someone else. But you can be at one thing by specializing, but a lot of people won't do that. Another thing you can do, acquire resources instead of consuming, and people won't do that. Mm -hmm. Another thing you can do is you could just outwork people 
and people don't do that. And those are the things that separate the 10% and the 1% from everybody else is the acquisition of secret knowledge, specialization, wild discipline and focus, outworking people, or acquiring a resource and having more resources come in than go out. If you can do any of those things, you have a much better chance. But here's the thing. To do that, you'd have to not join. To do that, you'd have to not join. And there's comfort in joining, and everybody does it. Yeah. Yeah, I hear I hear you, man. I hear you. I'm just, uh, I'm looking at, this is, I'm happy to sit here. I'd be happy to sit here for like, I don't know how long you've got. I feel like this this conversation could go for for a Let's long time. Let's I mean, I think you have more context on me than most people have ever gotten in an interview in terms of my childhood and my like some of my bullying story and the relationship I had with my parents. Everything I'm doing now is part of the experiment from a framework that I'm doing, and everything I'm doing is in the service of my singular goals of of bettering everybody and like basically eliminating the suffering that I experienced in another generation of people by what I build and what do I accomplish and elevating the creative people because the creative spirit is beaten and driven out of people and they're forced to suffer and to settle. The greatest artists, the greatest audio engineers, the greatest people I've met talent-wise in my life are somewhere bagging groceries, tending bar, working jobs they don't hate, working at a correctional facility. I'm kidding you not. I'm like blanking out people's names even mentally so I don't slip. and call no one out like but these are my like these are friends i grew up with these are people i know these are people that i take a vacation with once a year like and that's all the only time i ever see them Mm. because they don't have options and they don't have options because there's a framework that didn't deliver for them on their god-given ability that's what you want to create for people basically i want to create a framework that delivers on people's potential and their god-given ability and i want them to do it at a lesser price than i paid Gotcha. I want them to do it because it's like that cycle of suffering in my lifetime has to end with me. That's like a really very aggressive personal goal Mm -hmm. is that no more, no more starving artist, no more, no more needless suffering of the intellectual, no more mediocrity for misfits. No more. Awesome. man. I think that's a very good place to end. This is if you let everybody know where they can find you online, man. You guys can find me at Roberto Blake in all social media. Hit me up on my Instagram at Roberto Blake because that's like motivation and mindset and a public daily journal of the reality of being a creative and being an entrepreneur and being somebody who doesn't fit in. And so it's like, I'm raw, I'm real, even when it's not fun over in the Instagram. Over on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Roberto Blake 2. That's number two over a thousand videos, I think 1300 and counting right now, teaching you social media marketing, entrepreneurship, and high income skills that you can use to fight your way to financial freedom. Like, and you get the real talk on it. No, like no BS, no fluff. Uh, Just once in a blue moon, a sales pitch, (laughs) but the, um, on something that I built to help you. And over on Twitter, you can hit me up for the conversation anytime at Roberto Blake. Awesome. Make sure you follow Roberto. Like I said, I've been following him for a couple of years. And as you've probably gained from this podcast, he is a goldmine of information, motivation. And now we've got some awesome philosophy as well. It's been really cool actually going into the inner workings and seeing what makes you tick. I've really appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, you uh, you bring out the best, some people would argue the worst in me uh, in that regard. <laughs> Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Roberto Blake, this is Real Talk with Zuby. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunting you destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.